from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn about the environment's impact on our health and how new air pollution standards can improve it. Then we'll explore how periods of extreme cold test the durability of Wisconsin's social safety net. It's good to have that emergency response for anybody to be able to walk in, but what really resolves people's housing issues, surprise, surprise, is housing. We'll get an inside look at how the local FBI office actually operates. The FBI has to be invited in, in a lot of cases, by the local law enforcement. They have to reach out to the FBI and say, hey, we would like your help on this. They can't just, like we see on TV, come in and take over the scene. That's just not how it works. Plus, talk to the founder of Milwaukee's Kothi Dance Company, which is celebrating 55 years. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. The federal government is cracking down on air pollutions in cities like Milwaukee. Last week, the Environmental Protection Agency tightened its restrictions on soot. Soot is also known as PM2.5, short for particulate matter that measures just 2.5 microns across. That's 30 times smaller than a human hair, which is tiny enough to burrow deep into our lungs and enter the bloodstream. The pollution comes from sources like coal-fired power plants, agriculture, highway traffic, and forest fires. The updated soot standards brings the EPA's annual limit down from 12 micrograms per cubic meter of air to 9. This might not sound like much, but studies show exposure to this stuff is not safe. WUWM's Lena Tran spoke with Milwaukee nurse educator Lillian Jensen about the new regulations. Jensen is a member of the group Healthy Climate Wisconsin, and she begins by explaining how she first got involved in advocating for stronger air quality standards. The standard was something that was initially my first baby step into political advocacy, Back in 2020, I signed up for public remark and the standards at that time didn't pass. And so this has been a long journey to get to this point. So it's a good time to celebrate. (laughs) What was it about that issue? What kind of made this your thing? So I started out my nursing career on a medical surgical floor. Uh, Community-based hospital uh, was my career initially. And we saw a lot of geriatric patients there and lots of folks with congestive heart failure or asthma, COPD, respiratory issues, um, and also a lot of stroke. And I felt like as I continued my nursing career that in the hospital setting, we're at the very end stream of physical illness. We're at the point where this stuff has already happened to you. Here we are trying to treat it, mitigate it, make it not as bad maybe as it could be, but we aren't able to do anything to the upstream impacts. What could we do to help that you're not even in the hospital? So I don't even see you, right? Because I don't want to see you in the hospital unless you're visiting. I want you to live a happy and healthy life and feeling like, while I can be helpful here, I'd really want to pay attention to that upstream part and what can we do there. But I've always been interested in environmentalism. My father was in the 80s, an engineer in Antarctica on the Ross Ice Shelf Project, where they were doing ice core drilling. So it's been a part of my whole life, you know, hearing about climate change. So that kind of peaked that foray into environmentalism. Like, what is environmental impact on health? We talk about genetics, 
We talk about, you know, poverty's impact on your health, race impact on your health, but what about the environment? And that's when I started learning about specifically air pollution and its impact on health. Cool. That's amazing. Um, Well, fast forward a few years and the EPA has just finalized this new air quality standard, which tightens regulations of soot or particulate matter 2.5. What's your immediate reaction to this new standard? Well, this is a great step because I said before, right, I had lobbied for this and hadn't passed. And now having this come through, it's kind of a a moment of surprise, (laughs) to be honest. So having this step happen is a really big call out that folks are recognizing that that this is important issue. It's not going as strong as it really could be, but it's a good middle ground. It's a good initial first step that we're seeing here. And to be honest, a lot of the area around Wisconsin is not going to have trouble meeting those standards at all. There's actually other parts of the U.S. that will have a, a harder time with that. But I think it holds accountable those folks that are the highest emitters that otherwise, if we didn't have this in place, uh, may for financial reasons or other reasons, just not take that extra step to uh, reduce their emissions. Yeah. What are some sources of particulate matter in our region in Wisconsin? Coal plants absolutely are a big emitter of soot. So there's a coal plant in Oak Creek, which is a south suburbs of Milwaukee, a place that I live nearby. And in 2021, they reported that adults living within 35 kilometers of a coal-fired plant have worse lung function than those living further away. And I don't know about you, but I'm not great at distance, especially in kilometers. So it's like, how far away is 35 kilometers from that Oak Creek power plant? Um, And that's places like Mayfair Mall, the Milwaukee Art Museum, the Betty Brin Children's Museum, the Kenosha Dinosaur Discovery Museum. These are all places I've visited with my son and my family. Uh, And you don't realize that it's not just, oh, can I see that coal plant? I might have health impacts, but it's really, really widespread. So that's one of the controllable reasons for soot. Other reasons could be the, you know, the Canadian wildfires that we saw last summer, right? Now, controllable in terms of forest management, of course, in terms of climate change, those are going to be harder to control for than looking at our coal plants. Additionally, traffic, right? Traffic is another soot um, producer, and our traffic seems to always go through some of our lowest served communities as well. Well, you've kind of touched on this in a few different ways, but can you talk more about what the health impacts of this are? So I think when people think about air quality, they mainly think about respiratory disease, right? Asthma, COPD, I mentioned, and that's totally true. Um, And actually one of our lowest income zip codes, which I lived next to for a time, which is 53205, traditionally redlined in the past, by the way, that area code, children are hospitalized at at rates that are 10 times higher than those just one or two zip codes nearby. As we talked about the traffic being around those particular areas or potential power plants being around those areas as well. And so there are, there are higher rates of asthma, higher rates of COPD, worse lung function, but also that soot enters into our bloodstream through our lungs because it's so, so very small. It can go into your bloodstream and then it starts destroying the walls of your blood vessels. This can lead to stroke. Oh, those are the patients that I was seeing in the hospital, right? 
this can lead to higher blood pressure, hypertension in pregnant women. Uh, hypertension is one of the highest causes of low birth weight or infant mortality. And that high blood pressure in older Americans, right, can lead to heart attack or stroke, congestive heart failure too. So some of the big hitters that I was seeing in the hospital were also impacted by air quality. No group is not unaffected by it, right? Older Americans, pregnant women, kids, and of course, all of us, not in either of those groups, are all potentially impacted. So what are you going to call for next? I guess, what do you think would be the next step to keep on pushing on this issue? Definitely renewable energy, right? Energy that doesn't have such a big impact on the environment. We have some great funds coming through the IRA that we as a state need to really streamline and make it available to our state because these are federal funds. So if we don't use them, somebody else will. So our state really needs to be clear and try to remove as much red tape as possible for groups and communities to be able to get those funds and use them at the local level for the health of those communities. I think we can all still rally around the idea that we want our playgrounds, we want our schools, we want our um, places of worship to be places of clean air. And so we can I hopefully all come together on, well, how do we do that? What are the strategies we can mitigate on that? That was WUWM's Lena Tran speaking with Lillian Jensen, a nurse educator in Milwaukee and member of the group Healthy Climate Wisconsin. You can find more information at wuwm.com. Impact 211 is a central access point for people looking for social services, including emergency housing, food pantries, and mental health resources. By texting your zip code to 898-211, Impact will connect you to resources that you're looking for in your area. During the week of January 15th, temperatures stayed consistently below zero after a weekend of heavy snow. 211's call data showed a spike in people seeking emergency shelters or help regarding power outages, broken furnaces, and emergency food share. While a spike in demand isn't surprising during periods of extreme cold, it can put stress on these systems at times when they're needed most. To learn more about how Impact organizes emergency warming shelters, Lake Effect Sam Wood spoke with Impact 211's Director of Systems Change, Emily Kenny. So this was a few weeks ago, but some of us may remember the week of January 15th as a particularly cold week in Wisconsin. Temperatures were hovering around zero degrees for for multiple days in a row, wind chill below zero, far below zero for, for a lot of that. But internally at 211, how did this week of January 15th differ for you all than, you know, a normal week? So at Impact, we are a private nonprofit group that really looks at how we can assess and then coordinate care through a resource referral for people in southeastern Wisconsin to get people with critical conditions and critical needs to critical resources. And so 
a lot of our day-to-day -day work, both within the 211 program, which is a resource database and also a 24-7 call, chat, or text um, kind of social service resource line. We also oversee the coordinated entry system in Milwaukee County, and that is a um, the system by which people get into and through homeless services in Milwaukee County. Um, and so our, a lot of our day-to-day -day work at IMPACT, uh, particularly in those two programs, is making sure that we know what the resources are, that we have good relationships with agencies to be able to refer people to, um, and that we're prepared to take calls and work with people in need. But that goes into hyperdrive and did go into hyperdrive the week of January 15th and, and that weekend just prior because it was so cold. And at the same time, we had power outages throughout um, Milwaukee and Waukesha counties. We were working long hours, as you can imagine, and being in kind of more constant communication with government and private and resource agencies, like nonprofit resource agencies throughout the community. Is it fair to summarize for, for the perspective of someone who's not working within 211 that 211 exists so that you can, um, so if you're, if you're looking for a warming shelter or you're looking for, you know, a food pantry um, or you're looking for basic needs, that 211 exists as one place that you can go as a single door to enter a bunch of different services that the county or local governments offer. Is that a fair way of characterizing kind of what 211 is? Yes, so our goal is to have a comprehensive, up-to-date resource database throughout uh, of all the community um, health, family, and social services, and then operators either through telephone, chat, or text that can help people to access those resources. There's also now a website that people can access on their own. Um, but yes, that is our goal is to make sure we're connecting people in need of family, health, or social services to the resources that exist in the community. Walk me through how all this coordination works, particularly in a week like January 15th, where it was, you know, very, very cold, and you're expecting more people to be requesting particularly warming shelter services. Is it as simple as just, you know, getting on a group call the week before <laughs> bad weather is due to hit and hashing out who's taking care of what? Or is it a little bit more complicated than that behind the scenes? I would say it's a, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But in the moment of a crisis, it is a group call. Of course, to be able to be on the group call, we need to have some background with each other to be effective in those crisis moments. And so I'll talk about the role of coordinated entry first, perhaps, and then kind of how 211 plays in, and then what happened that week in the weather crisis. So coordinated entry throughout the year is working with agencies that um, are trying to serve people experiencing homelessness. And we do that by figuring out kind of what is the need within the community and then supporting our um, local Milwaukee Coalition on Housing and Homelessness um, in figuring out kind of how we get those services to meet people's needs. Because coordinated entry is the kind of starting point for that, we have a lot of good information about who's seeking services, where they're seeking services from, what the composition of family size is, and that kind of thing. And we use that every year when we're going into the winter to say, here's where we're meeting the emergency housing need within our community, and here's where we're falling short. And during the winter, we need to expand our emergency housing capacity 
in order to make sure that people are have someplace safe indoors to be. And so every year we um, work collaboratively to create um, warming rooms, and that is local nonprofits that open their doors um, at nighttime. We add staffing capacity so that people can come in during the winter. 211 then, their role is to make sure that they understand what the resources are and that that resource database is up to date really as much as we can by the day to the minute. And then we have regular communication from the National Weather Service, from our kind of county, Office of Emergency Management. The City of Milwaukee Health Department has different task forces around different potential emergencies to prepare so that we are meeting regularly when there isn't a crisis. And then we know who needs to be in that phone call when there is a crisis. And so when the National Weather Service was saying, hey, this is going to be really cold, we did all hop onto a call together and we determined that we needed additional space because we were concerned that there might be people that would be in need beyond the capacity of what we'd already planned for warming. And a big part of that was actually that power outages were happening. So we energies came onto those calls. Um, the health department and fire department was was on those calls, County Office of Emergency Management, um, the Red Cross. I'm, I'm probably forgetting forgetting folks. Certainly impact was on those calls. So we were all able to update each other on what we were doing, what we were seeing as the need, and then figuring out how we could meet that need. So in this particular case, the County Office of Emergency Management, in partnership with the Red Cross, stand up an additional um, site at North Division High School. Um, for people who had lost power or people that were unhoused and needed a safe warm space to be in addition to the warming and the general emergency shelters that that's usually available. What you're describing where all of these government entities, nonprofit entities, private entities coming together and ensuring that people's basic needs are met in times of a crisis, there's what you're describing sounds like, you know, the social safety net. And so it, it sounds like, you know, cold snaps like this are a real test for that social safety net, at least, you know, mm -hmm. from from your perspective. But is it fair to say that the cold snap was a test for Milwaukee or southeastern Wisconsin's social safety net? And if so, how did we do? <laughs> well, I think so. I do think that it is a test. I think one of the things I was most impressed with in Milwaukee, I wasn't as involved in um, kind of the Waukesha response or beyond Milwaukee County, but I was impressed with how much we did come together and how regularly um, people that could make decisions about what was needed were at the table and were trying to get resources to people. But I do think that one of the things that was highlighted and is highlighted every winter is that we don't have sufficient response for people. And even in this cold snap, kind of making sure that we had enough resource for as long as we needed to, it felt like a, a very emergency response. And then um, needing to figure out how do we sustain that and make sure that people after that that shelter closed, that they had safe places to go, really to me showed that we have we have some work to do in making sure that people have regular, safe, and warm places to be. People generally think about, gosh, we just then we need more shelter, and and I don't want that to be the message that comes across. We really need more availability of of housing and support to pay for for housing. Most of the people that came to that additional site at North Division 
were unhoused as opposed to just, you know, needing a little bit of time because their power was out. And so we have some work to do in terms of making sure that everybody has a safe and stable place to live. I think that we're getting better at that. But to me, housing has to be one of those first things that we're we're able to sufficiently catch you and support you in a place that is stable and hopefully likely to be permanent so that we can work on the other aspects of what that person needs. It's so much easier when people are in housing. Are there any lessons that you're taking from this experience for the next cold snap? Because, you know, this, after all, this is Wisconsin, right? So this, whether it's mm-hmm. this winter or next winter, we're going to see this kind of weather again. Are there any lessons that you're taking from this experience for that, for that next time? So I think one of the things that we know from this and also the cold snap that happened last year, one of the, the big takeaways is that we do need to make sure that we have low barrier accessible warming space during times of crisis. And one of the things that we were able to learn through the pandemic, actually, and it would be um, great if we could figure out how to fully implement this, is that it's good to have that emergency response for anybody to be able to walk in. But what really resolves people's housing issues, surprise, surprise, is housing. And so um, during the pandemic, we had additional funding that we would be able to pair people who walked into a warming site with a housing voucher, even a short-term one, to help people restabilize. And that's something that as a community, we're working toward how how we can get more regular dollars to help people get rehoused. We need the emergency response for sure, and having it be as low barrier and as accessible as possible is key to making sure we save lives. But we've got to make sure that we've got housing on the on the other end of it. And Emily, my last question for you is if there's anything you would like uh, listeners to know about um, how to access 211 services, um, either for themselves or someone they know, either in an emergency situation or just in general, if there's anything you'd like people to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. My main message for connecting with 211 is don't hesitate to reach out and don't hesitate to reach out early. I think one of the things particularly with housing issues, is that people, you know, want to be able to resolve it and call kind of at, at the moment of crisis. 211 is available 24-7 and can advise you at any point in kind of needing a health family or social service, what might be available within the community. So don't hesitate to reach out early to get that resource curation resources um, early on. Well, Emily, thank you uh, for your time and for joining me on Lake Effect. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Emily Kenny is the Director of Systems Change at Impact 211, and she spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods. If you or someone you know is looking for social services in your area, text your zip code to 898-211 to get connected with what you need. Coming up, we'll speak with the founder of Kofi Dance Company, who's celebrating 55 years and over 1 million children impacted right here in Milwaukee. But first, we'll learn more about what actually goes on inside Milwaukee's FBI headquarters and the kind of cases the agency is focusing on. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
This is Lake Effect on Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, or FBI, was founded in 1908, but its footprint here in Milwaukee hasn't always been consistent in its history. The local FBI moved from their downtown headquarters to a lakeside structure in St. Francis in 2016. They have a wide range of cases that they oversee, from terrorism, counterintelligence, public corruption and civil rights violations, to healthcare fraud, and much more. To learn more about what actually goes on at the local headquarters and to get some historical insight, freelance reporter Stephen Potter spoke with several local agents and even went through the FBI's Citizens Academy. It was all for his article called The Bureau, which is in this month's issue of Milwaukee Magazine. He joins me now to share more. Stephen, welcome to Lake Effect. Good to be here. So there's a lot to go into when it comes to the FBI here in Milwaukee, but let's start with their physical presence at least. Their local office is on Lake Drive in St. Francis, and I've run and biked past there many times on the Oak Leaf Trail. So when did the FBI officially take this building over? They outgrew their downtown office in about 2016 uh, to move into this kind of huge structure right on the lake there. And, you know, it used to be Stark Investments, so it used to be a big, you know, office firm, and it's just a huge space with about 80,000 square feet. How many people approximately work there? They wouldn't say exactly. Um, There's a lot of things they wouldn't say exactly, but about 200 FBI agents, analysts, and other office workers are in and out of that space, as well as other law enforcement who partner with the local FBI come in and out of that space as well. I know, you know, it's probably difficult to get some information for this story, but um, what other fun facts about the building did you find out? Because it's hard to miss when you go past it, but it's also unassuming at the same time. Yeah, it's a huge gray structure. And the f- one of the first things you'll notice are these just huge fences, very dark metal fences and uh, a security checkpoint. So you'll, you get this vibe of it. it's not very welcoming, right? Like, Don't turn in there and ask for directions. Just keep on moving. So the other things that they had to do to outfit this location, which, as I mentioned, was an office building, um, into an FBI headquarters was they had to secure it. And one of the things that they did is they improved the windows from uh, possible attack. So they put in three-inch thick glass all the way around facing the street and also on the lakeside in case anybody in boats wanted to cause them harm. And another thing that they did is they structurally improved the building with huge steel beams, um, kind of a skeleton, all from the roof all the way down to the basement in case of a bomb attack. So those are just some of the things they also built in, um, places for detaining arrestees and things like that, interrogation areas. The FBI, of course, has a wide range of things that they oversee, but can you explain to our listeners what generally falls under their purview? Sure. It's a number of different things. Um, There's a lot of overlap in in the areas, but largely it's terrorism, counterintelligence, cybercrime is a big one here, public corruption and civil rights violations, as well as organized crime. And that can be everything from, you know, old school mafia stuff to more Current times, you know, healthcare fraud and that kind of a thing. Um, also, white collar crime and certainly violent crime. And what's the threshold for cases that the FBI will take on? Because I imagine it needs to be worth their time, so to speak, in order to take it from a local jurisdiction. Sure, it has to be a large case where there needs to be a lot of resources and a lot of person power to investigate. There may be large groups doing the crimes. The crimes uh, likely cross state lines, so it gets that national effect. And it has to break some kind of a federal law. 
And you mentioned when the FBI takes over a case, um, one interesting part that I learned is that the FBI has to be invited in in a lot of cases by the local law enforcement. They have to reach out to the FBI and say, hey, we would like your help on this. They can't just like we see on TV, come in and take over the scene. That's just not how it works. That's interesting. I wouldn't have assumed that was the pecking order, so to speak. Um, what area of crime is the Milwaukee FBI prioritizing? You mentioned cybercrime is obviously a growing area, but did anything else stand out to you when you were speaking with your sources? Yeah, they're really uh, pushing now to make themselves available for uh, instances of public corruption. And that's when people of, in power, either elected officials or appointed officials, someone who is you know working on the tax dime commits crimes, either bribery or extortion, those kind of situations. Um, they definitely want to hear from people when those instances happen. And it's something that they are uh, actively looking for because it just it really shakes the public's trust. Those kind of cases, um, you know, when you, we work so hard to elect these individuals and then to have them turn around and commit crimes using taxpayer money to pad their own pocket, um, that's a problem that the FBI takes very seriously. You spoke with several local agents for this piece to learn about what actually happens at this office. And uh, typically it's not the guns out, super dramatic takedowns that we see portrayed in media, right? Right. It's not. It's it's a lot of paperwork. They have to get all of their ducks in a row first. And then they usually work with local law enforcement. There are a number of liaisons, whether it's the Milwaukee County, Waukesha County Sheriff's Office, the city of Milwaukee Police. Um, there's a lot of partnerships going on to build the case until they finally move on it. That can entail working also with city U.S. attorneys to build their cases and they can do regular, you know, on the street police work or behind the scenes, uh, undercover investigations. It really runs the gamut there of, of what they're capable of and what they'll do to start and finish a case. Obviously, they oversee things happening in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, southeastern Wisconsin, but there are times when the FBI is working on something that crosses state borders, maybe nationwide. And one thing I want to bring up that you mentioned in your article was something called Operation Cross Country. Can you explain what that was? Yeah, Operation Cross Country is a annual crackdown. It's a sting operation where different FBI offices uh, around the country make a concerted effort on one day, one night of the year to swarm out and apprehend human traffickers who are engaging in crimes uh, that involve kidnapping and coercing and threatening people, young men and women, sometimes minors, into prostitution and other illegal acts. And so they swarm an area, they, they make arrangements with these, uh, you know, pimps to meet at a hotel or at a bus station or in a parking lot to have uh, an exchange of sex for money usually and they swarm this person they arrest them and they arrest the trafficker rather um, how they treat what they call the victims is quite different and new and it's not what we see on tv yeah there's an emphasis of helping them giving resources rehabilitation so to speak not treating them like criminals right a new shift Right, right. They, they do look at these uh, people who are engaging in the actual acts of prostitution as victims because most cases these people do not want to be doing this work. They're threatened, they're kidnapped, they're trafficked. And so the FBI comes in, they arrest the traffickers, the perpetrators um, of it, but then they try to give the victims uh, services either for mental health help or for substance abuse, whatever it takes to get them to a position where they don't find themselves in that situation again. 
Another area of crime that you highlight in your article that's recently been on the rise, it's not the same scale, but it has similar names to what we just talked about. It's called virtual kidnapping, but there's no physical kidnapping happening. What exactly is this? This is a really unique, uh, very 21st century crime. It's, it's an extortion by deception scheme. So what happens is the kidnapping perpetrators will identify someone who is separated from their family, maybe on vacation or working out of the country, and they'll learn that this person is separated from their family, and then they'll work to cut the connection between that person and their phone or a computer. So they'll tell them that they have to go meet with uh, law enforcement or something, um, and, and they'll separate this person from their cell phone. Then these fake kidnappers will contact this person's family. And once they do that, they tell the family that this person has been kidnapped, even though they haven't. And then, you know, if you reach out to somebody's grandma and you tell them that they're kidnapped, the grandma's going to try to call them. They can't reach that person then. So then they extort money from the grandmother who thinks that her grandson has been kidnapped, when in fact that's not been the case at all. And then once the person comes back and gets their cell phone, they get all these calls from grandma and they say, grandma, no, no, I'm fine. And grandma says, well, I already gave him $10,000. And by that time, it's, it's too late and the crime's sunset. Yeah, a lot of virtual crimes on the rise. With, yeah. with more technology comes more opportunities, right? Indeed. Now, Milwaukee's FBI footprint hasn't always been super consistent here since the agency was founded in 1908. Can you share kind of when it started here, any significant gaps in uh, people being operated and stationed out of Milwaukee? What's some of the local history? So nobody knows for sure exactly when the Milwaukee office and the Wisconsin office kind of opened up, but it was certainly up and running by at least November of 1917. Um, and then during the 1920s, a uh, handful of FBI agents uh, in, in this area spent most of their time investigating not too interesting cases such as bankruptcy, car theft, labor violations, and, and trying to root out members of the Communist Party. There was one instance where it drew a lot of then national attention um, where an FBI agent was killed, and that was a case involving Al Capone's gang, specifically John Dillinger, and specifically Babyface Nelson had a shootout with a young FBI agent back then named Carter Baum, and he ended up killing Agent Baum, and uh, that was a very huge deal here, and um, it's still something that the local FBI holds very dear to their heart about how important their work is. You spoke with the FBI's national historian for this piece, and I personally would have kept him on the phone all day asking questions. So was there anything you wanted to know in particular, whether it was for this piece or something you were curious about? And you're like, hey, I have a source to talk to. Yeah, it was just about how, how the agency has, you know, changed and, and how they're viewed versus what actually goes on behind the scenes. So he mentioned that, you know, the focus changes as crime changes. Um, whether that's, you know, nowadays we've got cybercrime and all of these virtual crimes and other things. But, you know, back then, you know, it was a lot of more mundane things like um, bankruptcy, investigating those instances and things like that. But then there was also, you know, the mafia takedowns and such that we've had here in Milwaukee as well. Um, but it's just how much crime has changed over time and how the FBI and the agency has reacted to that. I'm wondering, what was your initial reaction to getting this article and trying to formulate kind of what you were going to write around it, given that 
they're not going to share everything with you, but we're also trying to show people, hey, this is actually what happens in this building that some people might pass every day. Yeah, I had a very unique situation. I reached out to them and I said, hey, we want to look at maybe possibly an article um, on what you all do. And they invited me into something called the Citizens Academy, which is uh, where they bring in people from, you know, citizens uh, to the FBI headquarters for about seven weeks. And they show us kind of the view behind the curtain. We have different classes on what is white collar crime? What does violent crime look like? What is cyber crime? And how do they tackle those things? And what's their end goal? And with a lot of law enforcement, their work is reactive. And the FBI is the same there, but they're also proactive. They want to not only take down the imminent threat, but they want to cut the roots of it too and try to stop others from just picking up where that other criminal left off. So they, they are proactive in that as well. I'm impressed a Citizens Academy for research on the article. Yeah, it was it was a lot. Um, we did a lot of different simulations, and they took us through a lot of the different training, um, such as crisis negotiation and other kind of uh, active shooter situations, um, and the amount of training that they all go through to get in, and then also keep up on training and all the specialties that they go into is quite a bit. Well, if people want to learn more, they can look at your article in this month's Milwaukee Magazine. But for today, Stephen, thank you so much for joining me to share more. Great to be here. Thank you. Stephen Potter is a freelance reporter with Milwaukee Magazine, and you can read his full article on the Milwaukee FBI called The Bureau in this month's issue of Milwaukee Magazine. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. We'll take one more break and then learn about Kofi Dance Company, which is celebrating 55 years in Milwaukee. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Kofi Dance Company is celebrating 55 years in Milwaukee. The company, founded by Fern Cocker in 1969, performs and teaches dance and music created by Africans and the African diaspora. Cocker joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to explore the roots of this company and how they're celebrating its five and a half decades in existence. How do you describe Kofi Dance Company? You know... We have always, and I guess at the beginning when I started the company, it was in Ghana, actually, in 1969. I was sitting on the sands looking out at the Atlantic Ocean right outside of the slave fort called Elmina Castle, which was supported by the British, the Portuguese, and the Americans were all part of that slave trade. And as I was sitting there looking out, I had toured the fort in 1969 and then was sitting there on the beach and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do as an artist. And I know that the African dance and music was very close to my heart, having been born there. 
and then moving here to the United States. So that's when the revelation came for me to start a dance group to see if I could become a connector between the African arts and aesthetics and the continent and African-Americans over here. The name Kofi came from my father's language, the Chevro people in Sierra Leone. He was African and had met my mother at the University of Chicago, who was African-American, and then they went to Sierra Leone. And it means go black, go black as a color. The color black is the, but I wanted it to refer to black culture, wherever that is in the diaspora. So from the very beginning, when I created the company, I've always thought of it as growing it into being this accessible place where people could touch tone the African continent through the aesthetics of the African continent. And then that took us on a journey from 1969 to present, researching and developing and creating and teaching wherever Africans ended up. Because for us to be on this journey, we couldn't ignore the process of enslavement. Because the question is, how did Africans end up in Brazil? And how did those Black people end up in the Caribbean? You can't just suddenly you know, wipe that out and ignore what happened. There's a reason why all those people ended up in the South and ended up in Brazil, in South America, and ended up in the Caribbean. So with them was an embodiment of music, song, dance, aesthetics, art, theater, poetry, literature. And so that's what we do in Kofi. We, we study this, we bring master teachers in, and that's been our mission to promulgate or, as we say, to spread, to give people an opportunity to explore. And this is a long definition, but it's not about, this is just for Black people, because when, I guess one of the problems I'm having today, this will probably take us down another road, but is it this movement that you can't teach Black history with the rawness of what actually happened, because it might offend children who are descendants of people who potentially were some of the perpetrators. But that is a losing and a really sad, sad argument, because that means that all these years in my life, the first 40 years of my life, and I'm in my mid-70s, past mid-70s now, that I should have been offended all those years when I was just learning Greek mythology and, and British history as a child from the colonial era. I should have been offended because I wasn't learning anything about people who look like me. So those arguments just don't wash with me. That actually, that kind of gets to my next question for you. Going back to 1969 when you founded Kothi, mm-hmm. what was the dance scene like in Milwaukee? Oh, my God. Well, you know, in the 60s, well, you weren't born then. <laughs> I don't think. But in the 60s, you know, that was, uh, you know, I'm Black and I'm proud. And it was the whole renaissance in the Black community of touchstoning something that was cultural, the dashikis and the Afros and all of that. That was a a very interesting period of time where there was a lot of interest. You know, Osibisa, the Ghanaian band had written a song called Welcome Home which was really interesting because they played that when we went back this, just when I went this time in 2023, 24, you know, they were playing their song that they wrote in the 60s to the African-Americans who had just landed when we got to the airport. That's what they played. And so, you know, that whole era of Black dance and, you know, Alvin Ailey was inside of that milieu. Um, Catherine Dunham, all these people, uh, Chief Bay, Rod Rogers, all these Black choreographers were very active 
and their companies had just started and they were very, very visible. So it was a full range of music, song and dance that was going on. People were doing African dance and playing African drums, even though they hadn't trained in any of it because nobody was really exposed until around, I'd say, the 70s, when we started getting national dance companies from Africa touring the world and they would stop off like in Chicago or Le Bali African, for example, came to Milwaukee and people started seeing the real deal and studying. And then people started going to Africa to study and then bringing African artists back to the Milwaukee area. And that's that's how it built. As you look back at the last five decades of Kothi in Milwaukee, how do you think it has changed and affected the dance scene and the art scene more generally in Milwaukee? One of the things I'm most proud of, and I think those of us who are in the current leadership in the organization, is that we teach on multiple levels. In terms of impact, I'm a part of a group called SMAC, a small arts core. There's 11 of us that are fundraising to raise funds to, so we can keep our organizations afloat. And one of the tasks we had was to lay out in all the years that we've been functioning, how many children we've reached, blah, 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 blah. And when I started putting it all and adding it together, I realized, oh my God, Kofi has touched over 1 million children in our 55 years, 54 years, going into the 55th year. You can't put money on that. I mean, it would be nice if somebody would say, you know what, I this story really makes me want to send them a check. <laughs> <laughs> it would be nice to have some money to, but, you, but there is no fund large enough to equate that human experience. So I feel that Kofi is not just about teaching children and teaching the community and having classes and exposing all children, all races, all ages and humans but it's about affecting not only the person in the class, but the, who they affect when they leave the class or they come back into the classroom. So I know that we have, after five decades, a long, long history with not just individuals, but with them and their families. We have a long, long history as the oldest African-American Black arts organization in the state of Wisconsin. And that's something to be celebrated. That can't be taken away from us. Not a perfect organization, by no means. But our legacy is real clear. Yeah. Now, uh, Kothi is celebrating its 55th anniversary, which is a big accomplishment for any organization, but especially a dance company. Yes. (laughs) In this day and age, yes. Yeah. (laughs) How are you planning to celebrate these 55 years this year? What are, what are the performances that you have lined up? Right now, there's some key things happening. One of the things we decided to do was in terms of image, you know, what was going to be our theme for this year? And one of the natural things that has always fascinated me in my trips to Africa is the baobab tree, which is a very ancient tree like the redwoods. And it looks like an upside down tree with the roots at the top and great big our root system. In the old days, they used to bury the griots or the storytellers inside of the roots of the baobab tree. So we decided that we wanted to honor that tree and its legacy and how old some of those trees can be. The 55th year celebration is called Under the Baobab Tree. And we have a series of events that are going to to harness and bring everybody together, alumni and the community. 
We're starting off first, though, with a fundraiser February 21st at Panera Bread on Fort Washington in Glendale. Between 4 and 8 p.m. on February 21, you can come in the store and buy anything you want there and coffee and sweet buns and what have you. And Kothi receives 25% of the receipts. So February 21, you want to support Kothi, stop over at Panera Bread. And then April 6th, we're going to have our concert, which is titled Under the Baobab Tree. We'll be at Pius High School in Wauwatosa, 7.30 p.m. May 4th, we have two things happening on that date. On that Saturday during the day between 10 and 4, we will have a conference of African dance and drumming with guest teachers coming in. It's going to be very exciting. This is our second time doing a conference. And then that night will be in the union at UWM. Both the classes will be in UWM Mitchell Hall. And then in that evening, 5.30 to 10, May 4th, we'll be in the union where we're going to have a bantaba slash party to celebrate the 55th year. And there's some surprises that are going to happen with that too. So that'll all be announced very soon. And then May 5th, that Sunday, we're continuing with the conference in African dance and drumming and some uh, potential panel discussion, etc. So that's just the first part taking us up to the spring. There'll be more things that we'll be announcing for later in the summer and into the fall and to the end of the year. A lot to look forward to. Fern, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and congratulations on this really momentous anniversary. I appreciate you, Joy. Fern Cocker is the founder of Kothi Dance Company. She's a board member for the organization, and she's currently the interim executive director. She spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. If you'd like to learn more about Kothi's programming for this year, you can head to kothi.org. That's K-O-T-H-I.org. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, and Excret Nunez join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Eddie Morales, Mayan Silver, and Lena Tran from the WUWM News Team this week. Jason Reevy is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. If you've missed any of Lake Effect from this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, simply download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.